Come on in, sit down, grab a beer, and get comfy for yet another Beer Napkins podcast. We hope you'll find the next 30 minutes or so enjoyable, educational, and inspirational. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check our web, our site at beerandnapkins.com, all one word, and use the word and, and not the symbol. And you can also find us on Twitter at Beer and Napkins, again, all one word. Beer and Napkins helps generate new ideas and new initiatives by leveraging informal third spaces, community-enabled design, and visual thinking. Now off we go. A big round of applause for our hosts. Are you ready, Phil? I'm ready, Paul. How are you this evening? I am just great. I am not, because we're doing this on what? Uh, what's today's date? January 30th, 2019. I am not, luckily, freezing. I'm in South Carolina, so I don't have to worry about the temperature too, too much. I mean, I'm complaining because it gets close to 30. Well, I'm right in the mid- middle of Detroit town, and I'm freezing my butt off. It's uh, what, are you, what are you at? I'm at right in the middle of Allen Park here, near the, all the Ford facilities up here, and minus 6, and tomorrow I think it's supposed to be minus 15, so it's shifting from Chicago, I guess, to down here in Detroit. So I think it said wind chill maybe 30, or minus 30 or 40, so the polar vortex is... Yeah. I'm experiencing, for a southern guy, it's definitely... Uh, an experience. <laughs> I, you know, I lived in Minneapolis for five years, and I've done my time, and I had plenty of opportunity to move, to move back, and I always said no, and it was because I could leave here, and it would be sixty degrees, and I'd get off the plane, and it would be five or five below. So, um, I don't envy anybody above the Mason-Dixon or whatever. I don't even know where that is anymore. But uh, anyway, we'll stay warm up there. So, well, we got a new uh, episode of uh, Beer and Napkins, huh? Yeah, so we're excited to have Deb Mill Schofield on here, innovator, mentor, yeah. all around uh, great person and friend. So I'm excited that she's on tonight and really appreciative of that. Um, yeah, and I'm kind of curious, you know, before we get into that, you know, you had asked, uh, you know, you usually ask us when we're starting this bar talk chat forward portion, you know, what's going on? And I'm curious, what are. Uh, you're out and about. What are you hearing these days that's kind of interesting as it relates to, you know, beer and napkins and innovation and all of that? So what are you hearing? Anything going on out there that's interesting to you? Well, in, in my purview, I've been reading a book called Elastic about how your mind changes and how you can, how your mind can meet the new changing environment. So change in the chaotic emerging environment's been definitely in my mindset and uh, just hearing a lot of chatter about that and how we can kind of meet the, uh, the new environment in a, in a very robust and resilient way. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's one of the things. And uh, uh, the other thing is uh, the whole Facebook thing. I mean, that, yeah. I think it's kind of prevalent. And, and, and recently, just uh, as a personal calibration, I removed Facebook from my phone just to, just to huh. kind of not have it available, trying to build a good habit stack and not uh, having right. the temptation of, of seeing it, not just because of all the, the ethical and other issues of, of social media and things like that, but just as a personal 
thing. So, uh, how about yourself? What, what's uh, what's come across your? Well, you know, I, I, interesting. You brought up Facebook, and interesting that once we talk, start talking with Deb here in a minute, I think it'll come into to four too. But you know, I went off Facebook about a year ago for about a year, uh, which you know, you think on the surface that that'd be really difficult. It actually wasn't. <laughs> it was for like a week, and then after that, I just got into a rhythm of actually not worrying about what's going on everywhere else. And I did it specifically because of all of the political stuff that was going on. And it kind of strikes me interesting that we all thought social networks was going to be this great boon for getting diverse ideas and being able to interact with people we never would be able to interact with again. And, I, you know, it's almost like it's starting again to create more and more segmentation and we end up just falling back into our own echo chamber and nothing else matters. So we end up with less diversity of thought. We have more people, um, you know, but less diversity. It's kind of a weird uh, thing. So I'm kind of curious when we get Deb on the phone here, let's talk about that because I know part of her gig is that she's involved with innovation. She's involved with diversity of thought and things like that. So what do you think? Do you think we're less diverse or more diverse when it comes to thinking because of social networks? Well, I I think it still has that element. And and interesting enough, Paul, I met you on Twitter. And I I know I met Deb through Twitter and social media. So I met a lot of great people. And it connected me uh, early on when it was in this infancy. You know, there was a lot of... Of, of this this good feeling and connection and all that, so I, it was just a great time. So I think there's some definitely soul searching and reflection on the use of, right. of it. And I, but I'm interested to see how it it, it, it goes into a different route I, through. Uh, and Deb uh, Deb just heard this before uh, at some of the Biff the Business Innovation Factory uh, events where uh, these purposeful networks is kind of emerging. So kind of a uh, move from the broad, you get as many friends as you can to to more uh, smaller groups. So I don't know if a, a Deb would echo that or not, but interesting to hear her viewpoint. So it, that's probably yeah. a good segue. Um, uh, I want to go ahead and introduce Deb Mill Schofield, and thank you for coming on tonight. Really appreciate you being with us, and uh, I'm just excited to hear your story and your journey, Deb. So, um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, just just uh, you have a very interesting background from uh, your early years in Brown University with the cognitive program there to your 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 your, your innovation and, and skunk works, I guess, in the Bell Labs to to um, your own private private practice and consulting. So I'm going to turn it over to you uh, just to just kind of share a little bit about about yourself and. I think you're living in uh, Cleveland now, right? And, and going, traveling into Maine sometimes and so forth. But uh, maybe just kind of a little share a little bit about yourself and ask a few questions. Okay. Um, and I do, I want to, the Facebook thing was really interesting. Um, I have mixed feelings, so we can chat about that. Um, so I'm originally from New Jersey, a commuting suburb of Manhattan. So I grew up on the ocean in New Jersey. Uh, we went into New York several times a week, so my, I'm first gen on my mom's side, and neither of my parents were really big on public education. They were really big on education, but just not public. And so on Tuesdays, the museums were free in New York City, so every Tuesday, we went in, we didn't go to school, we went into New York City to museums, 
And then sometimes we'd go back in on Fridays or we just stayed home to play because my parents thought that we needed more time to play and less time at school, um, which, like, the school wasn't really thrilled about. But, you know, we got A's, so what could they do? And then we went into the city a few times in the evening um, during the week to the opera, ballet, philharmonic, plays, jazz, everything. So I had a rather eclectic upbringing. Um, was taught to question everything and um, think through, you know, how to make an argument. So if I wanted to argue or disagree with something, you know, what was my... Well, now I'd use the term value proposition. Then, of course, we didn't say that. So um, it made kind of perfect sense, given how I'm wired, that I wanted to go to Brown, where you're taught how to ask really great questions and question everything. So that's what I did. I was part of a very small group of students working with our profs, um, two of which are still alive, and I'm very close to and see when I'm up there. And we started what was called, well, still called the Cognitive Science Undergraduate Program. So I think at that time, like this is 79, 80, there were no undergrad programs in COXI. There might have been a few graduate, but no undergrad. And the purpose of COXI was how do you understand how the brain processes information? And at that time in 79, yes, believe it or not, um, at Brown, the, the path you normally would have taken was to start doing work in AI. And we didn't want to do AI because the goal of AI was how do you get the computer to do what the brain does? And we wanted to use the computer as a tool for understanding how the brain processed stuff. And it was enough of a philosophical difference that it warranted a whole different concentration. So I was the first class to graduate. I also graduated in three years because everybody said you can't graduate from Brown in three years. And so I said, all right, watch me. Wow. Um, now, like, I don't regret doing that at all. I wouldn't change anything I've done. I also wouldn't go, like, tell kids, oh, graduate from Brown in three years. Because, I mean, it's just too cool a place to do that. Um, let's see what else. My summer jobs now we call them internships, then we called them summer jobs, was at AT&T Bell Labs, um, although it was just called Bell Labs then, in New Jersey. And that's where I went to work right after school, right after I graduated. So I went down to Bell Labs, was working on some user interface, user experience stuff. This is, I graduated in 82, so this is 82. Also in my summer jobs, I was doing a lot of research on... Um, text-to-speech and speech-to-text recognition. So actually more on speech-to-text, which was very much in its infancy versus like Siri today. Back then you had to train the system to recognize your voice. And if you had a cold, you had to retrain the system to recognize your voice with a cold. But, you know, it's pretty cool to think like 35, 36 years ago, we did have speaker-trained voice recognition. Wow. Um, so I was working on a bunch of stuff at Bell Labs, um, then changed gears to do more what was called systems engineering, designed some stuff that I was supposed to be working on and got a patent for that, which ended up being one of AT&T and Lucent, because then Lucent split away later, um, one of their top generating, revenue generating patents. So I got another plaque because of that. No money, because, you know, you sign over your life. Um, 
And what else? So what was the, I'm curious, I, I hate to interrupt, but I'm curious, what is the patent? What was it around? Well, so I was asked to design the system architecture for a voicemail system, a fax storage messaging system, and an email system. And actually, I'd been doing email since like 78 in high school and grew up with Unix, which is what I used at Bell Labs. So um, in my mind, you know, voicemail, fax was an image, emails, bits, bits are bits. Who really cares? Why don't I just create one common architecture? You, You know, you say on the front, okay, I'm voice or I'm an image or I'm a this, and you pass the bits along. And I had been using and growing up with what was then ARPANET, what became the internet, but we had other whatever net words for it. And I knew the TCP IP protocol somewhat. I had some impact on some of the headers and changing some of that. And so um, that's basically the way I designed it so that as technology evolved and you could do speech to text and text to speech and you could have optical character reading, et cetera, et cetera, the user could decide where they wanted to get their messages. Did they want to, you know, like hear their fax machines or something like that? So, um, and then I figured, what? Well, I just figured it was, why do three different architectures? It was just easier to do one architecture, tell them what's inside the envelope and move the bits around. And then I was done and I could go do the next thing. Um, you know, it didn't, it, so, um, and it really, it, we had to share our data patents with everybody else. We, Bell Labs, as a result of the breakup of the Bell system. So IBM and a company called Deck Digital and another one, Wang, and all those, they did a lot more with that protocol that I developed, that architecture, than AT&T did, of course. So, but so it was fun. Just a just quick, quick question, you know, back going back up to your childhood to Brown to the innovation lab that's that sense of wonder exploration do you feel that 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 led you there was this just something you fell into or do you feel that that this uh, this wonder or this 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 spirit of inquiry that you've had growing up kind of propelled you in this direction of, of, of innovation? Um, yeah, I think it did. I didn't know that's what did it. You know, now when I look back, I can say that. Um, but I was an insatiably curious kid. I was raised that way. I'm also wired that way. And um, I don't know how not to be that way. And so I was in a home that fostered that. I think that's part of why Brown was attractive to me. And I was blessed enough to be able to get in where then that's fostered. And then you go to Bell Labs where that's what you're paid to do. So from the time I was like nothing till, um, I don't know, I was like 35 when I, well, I was older when I left Bell Labs. But every job I had, everything I did was based on the assumption that you were going to be curious and push the envelope and learn stuff. I mean, that was part of, like, the life or job description, so to speak. So I'm extremely blessed. I mean, I had no idea what Bell Labs was really like or represented in terms of being unusual. I mean, it just seemed, like, normal to me. It sounds like they were very progressive as as you were a woman in that era, 
you, did you feel like you had any hurdles to cross or challenges as a, as a woman in that era, or did, was it very open and accepting and uh, inclusive? And well, there t- one answer to that is I don't know because I can be like a bull in a china shop. Um, <laughs> the other thing is Bell Labs, and I've I've learned this over the years from talking to other people again because I'd never worked anywhere else. That Bell Labs was just a very unique and amazing culture. Um, so I never felt anything being female. I mean, maybe it happened. I just was unaware of it. But there were a lot of other women that were coders and did stuff I did. I wasn't by any means the only female. Probably half half my team was female. What I did feel was, at first, some age discrimination. So I was 20 years old when I graduated, and I go to Bell Labs. And um, the drinking age had been raised, I think nationally then, to 21. So my very first conference I go to in New York City with my boss, it's September. And you have to be 21 to go in because they're serving alcohol. And I couldn't go in. So he did something that allowed me to go in and, you know, swear on someone's life I wouldn't drink. And I think at first there was a little bit of, well, you're just a kid versus any kind of gender thing. Um, But then my bosses use so much of their capital, human social capital. So, for instance, you couldn't be a member of technical staff without a master's in some areas or a Ph.D., and they would pay for you to go get your master's, but I didn't want a master's. I wanted to just like work in the real world and learn. So I was made a member of technical staff without requiring any graduate work, and I was the first one that ever got that. So, um, and that didn't seem like that big a deal. At least my management didn't let me feel that that was that big a deal. It was like, you do really good work, so here, we're gonna do this. And that's kind of how everything was presented. And I was set up to succeed. I was always set up, prepped, trained, you know, before any briefing, before anything else, reviewing my talk like a zillion times. Everything was done so that I could always take the credit and my boss would always take the blame. <laughs> That's awesome. it, I mean, it really was, uh, It's it's been a charmed career. Great, great story of a transition and, and really developing your mindset in such a innovative environment. It's just a, it's just an amazing story. So you went to Bell, um, you, you nourished your career for how long? I was at Bell Labs and then moved up to AT&T for a total of 19 years before I quit. That's a, that's a good run. So did you yeah. go to... Consult, consulting after that, or did you go into any other corporate positions? Um, I went to it after that. So what happened was, um, in 1988, I married this guy who was doing basic research at Bell Labs. That, I mean, Bell Labs really did basic research that could end up with nothing, but that's what you get to do when you're a monopoly. Um, and he had left New Jersey and moved to Oberlin College near Cleveland to go teach, to which I was like, you know, have a nice life. New Jersey's as far west of the Hudson as I'm ever living, honey. Um, so maybe I was wrong. But um, 
so I wouldn't quit. AT&T did a corporate relocation for me to my home, which was lovely. Um, set me up with all these high-speed internet and data lines into the house. And then I commuted every week for nine years back to my office in New Jersey and also Europe and Asia every month. And when I became pregnant, I didn't want to travel anymore. And they were just totally cool with that. So I did a lot of stuff remotely. I gave up managing as many people as I had. And then um, had two kids, took my leaves, did all that stuff. But by then, it was getting so frustrating. AT&T, I think, had just bought TCI, which was the cable company, which made no sense when you really looked at it from a business and technical standpoint. And I was just miserable because there's just nothing you could do. AT&T was really going downhill quickly. And so it was my husband, who's a professor at Oberlin, who had the health plan um, that said, well, why don't you quit and go out on your own? So this is where I'm the main, bread, I'm the main breadwinner. I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old, and we just bought the house in Maine. And he's like, go out on your own. And I'm thinking like, holy shizzle, you know? Um and it's not, you know, like if we'd moved back to New Jersey, I could have asked AT&T for anything and they would have given it to me. But I can't walk into some big fortune company in Cleveland and say, you know, I'm really hot, you know what, I'm excellent, and you should hire me and I'll give you your 50, 60 hours a week just when I want them and some might be from home because I want to be a mom. And so I felt the only option I had where I could have control over my schedule and be able to be a mom was to go into consulting on strategy and innovation. And so that's how I started it. That's why I started it. And I used the local Brown Alumni Network to start getting clients. And then I also became a partner in an early stage VC firm too. Ah, so, so that, was a, that was a watershed moment for you when <laughs> No kidding. I was, I mean, I really was totally petrified. Well, it sounds like you had a good support from your from your husband and the network, and stuff like that. You feel that the the lab was very. You, you always, since I've met you, Deb, you've always had a, a spirit of collaboration and uh, working with the networks and groups. Has it always been that way, or is this something you've nurtured? Well, you know, at Brown. Um, it's obviously competitive to get into, but Brown is different, I think, than the rest of the Ivies in that you, you don't compete with each other, your peers. You compete with yourself, which I don't know. Maybe for some of us, that could be worse. Um, so you're not trying to outdo your friends or your peers in class. You're trying to outdo what you think you're capable of doing. So that makes Brown a very collaborative environment. You, I mean, you work together. At Bell Labs, it was very much collaborative work. Almost so much stuff was done in teams. I think some of the only stuff that wasn't done in teams was like basic research. Um, so then, I mean, it's just always been working in teams the whole way. So I don't know how not really to work in a team because I really never had until I went out on my own. And then I looked to find some kind of team to bounce ideas off of in that on my own. Gotcha. So, so this business, uh, did, is it a Debs Mill Schofield Consulting? Um, did you 
did you name it or did you did you just kind of go out? How did you get your first clients and get out into the consulting world? How did you break the ground? So I made a very creative name, Mills-Schofield LLC, because um, I just didn't want to think of like something and anything cute I would thought of there was someone already had the domain name um because this is 2001 or so um so I I would just go out and start meeting people in Cleveland and Cleveland is a very large small town you can you can meet the network pretty quickly and it was really through the Brown Alumni Network that I got my first client and then I used the methodology that I'd used in doing strategic planning like stuff at Bell Labs and AT&T and the way I get business is totally word of mouth. Because a CEO is not going to Google strategic planning and start looking. A CEO is going to ask his or her buddies, who do you use? Who have you used? Um, and that's really just word of mouth and pounding the pavement and doing a ton of networking. And then every time I do a coffee or something, you know, who else should I meet? That kind of thing. That's a lot of work. But it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you've done really well in it. The the I want to hear the story about the blue lobster. Did that come around the same time, or is that something that come to you later in your consultancy? So that came later. Um, we'd probably been going up to Maine for about ten or eleven years. 12 years before I saw my first blue or heard about my first blue lobster up there and then started putting things together and created the blue lobster mean as a blue lobster being a person or organization that views the world differently challenges the status quo doesn't take no for an answer and wants to leave an impact so the story behind that is blue lobsters are about one in two million they're due to a genetic defect, if you will, in the cells that make up the pigment of the shell. Where we are in Maine is a place I learned about because of one of my roommates up at Brown who did research up there during the summer, so I would go up to Damariscotta and Pemaquid all the time, ended up falling in love with the place. Turns out then years later I discover that in we're on the Pemaquid Harbor and the next peninsula southwest of us is where the University of Maine has a marine research center. And when they're done studying their blue lobsters, they literally dump adolescent blue lobsters into Pemaquid Harbor. And so we tend to have a higher than normal percentage of blue lobsters. And so to me, that kind of represented the, the combination of the network. I learned about that through my network because of my roommate. And serendipity, because who knew that's where you have Maine dropped adolescent blue lobsters. And so that's a meme that started evolving probably about maybe even 10 years ago. And I didn't realize it took a while for, for me to get that that was really a meme, a meme and a theme. And it's unique. It's iconic. They're just absolutely gorgeous. They can be more purpley than blue. Um, and it's probably been in the last six or seven years that I've really developed this concept of the blue lobster as a person or organization. And so that's what I call my, my mentoring stuff up at Brown is finding your blue lobster. Finding your blue lobster. I love that. Thank you. 
Yeah, in the Serendipity. field, they have something called the purple squirrel. So it's kind of a similar right. finding that that one one in the in the blue lobster world. What is it? One in two million, I guess, is what they say. Is the, yeah, one in two. I just read something about one in five, but I think it's like one in two. And then it ties in really nicely with um, I'm forgetting their names, but the blue ocean folks, red ocean, blue ocean. Yeah. Because yeah. you know the way you get a blue ocean is by having blue lobsters in your organization. Oh, nice, nice, nice yeah. connection. Yeah, I got a quick. You, you mentioned I, I, I find this fascinating because uh, you had talked about you know working in a collaborative environment at, at Bell Labs and and having collaboration as a key element of what you do, and then you go out on your own as with an LLC and you start your own consulting firm. And and Phil and I both have done that. We've had our own firms. I sold mine a few years back and went back as a W two person just because I enjoyed and I'll be the teamwork of it mm-hmm. uh, as a sole proprietor, sole consultancy. I found it very difficult to fulfill that that team requirement. I always said that I spent most of my day making two phone calls, calling people to get money from them to sell, and then calling people that I have sold to get money from them on an invoice. So that I really do a lot of the other stuff that I thought I would enjoy. So I'm curious, how did you solve for that? How did you keep that teamwork in your practice and in your work every day i mean how did you because i couldn't do it i had to go back and say you know what i I give up well in the beginning i didn't as much but in the beginning um i did not go full-time till my daughter was in all-day kindergarten so in the, the first few years of my practice i am you know a working mom and between my husband and i and we had a nanny we're moving the kids around but um not that I didn't have time, but I had so much other stuff going on, and I read a lot. Like, every morning I read the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. I used to read the, I'm not going to get this right, the South Morning China Post, or whatever that paper's called, too. Um, and I just read voraciously all sorts of stuff, left, right, middle, up, down, diagonal. So that was some of how I was getting it. and And I would try to challenge my clients which would help challenge me a little but more the way I've gotten it as the kids have gotten older is I really try to get up to brown once a month during the academic year I mean once a week every month I always say that wrong so for almost a full week every month during the academic year I try to get up to brown and that is where I do collaborative thinking. That's where my brain gets stimulated. It's also emotionally unbelievably rewarding with these students. But I advise um, some of their projects. I do some teaching. I do some guest lecturing. I lead independent studies. And I am just learning a boatload, which keeps me questioning my own orthodoxies and my own beliefs. And to keep up with those kids intellectually, makes keeping up with my clients, no offense to them if they're listening, really easy. Because if you can keep up with those kids, you can keep up with an adult client. And so that's how I, in the last few years, um, have really done that. Because a lot of the underlying ideas from a collaborative standpoint with my clients, um, the business ideas are more foundational. And... I just find putting a liberal arts perspective on them 
this may sound weird to some people, but really helps challenge how how I help them make decisions, how I help them think through where they should be and by when and how they're going to get there or how they're not going to get there and what they're not going to do. So I just find it really um, foundational. And I'm addicted to it. Deb, you're my hero. Um, oh, you Flexibility. So you're, you're, you're constantly challenging yourself to think outside and and I find it myself as the older I get um, I, I, I sense my it, it's a challenge for me and I, I think you really ran toward it and really embraced uh, your thinking and I, it's, that, that's just it's just amazing um, I know Paul and myself we're, we're both getting up there and and um, speak for yourself <laughs> I, I got a, I got a, I got a portrait in the attic that's very old looking. Let me put it that. Way. Okay, okay. Well, at least you don't. You, that's true. You, you do look younger than I do, with my gray beard. I'm, I'm approaching the Santa Claus look. So. Yes, you are. <laughs> but it's quite, quite chic. Well, thank you. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm just. I really admired the approach that you've taken. It, it, and it, it does keep you young being around there. Uh, Paul and I have had this discussion about the, the, the there's a lot of whole industry going around uh, of really advocating the differences in the generations. With your mentorship of the Brown, uh, Brown students, do you find that amount of difference? And what's your perspective on that generational uh, uh, divide? Is it that much? Is it thinking's different or, or, or what's your experience around that I think it's a lot of bullshit um, <laughs> so, that's me applauding okay see I think that an awful lot so there, there's the millennials which are kind of in between me and the students because I guess these kids are whatever the next generation is the, um, okay the, so I see, first of all, whenever someone complains about millennials and they're around our age or whatever, I just tell them, you know, go, if you don't like what you see, go look in a mirror because you're who raised them. <laughs> no, so don't give me this, you know what. Um, I think these kids are asking for stuff we all wanted and didn't either have the guts or the freedom to ask for. Because with the stuff they asked for, that's when I realized how charmed my corporate upbringing had been or my Bell Labs days. We had all that at Bell Labs. I mean, Google, Google X with their 20% time and all that, apparently they got all that from Bell Labs. I mean, in the early 80s, we had video games, ping pong tables, we had outdoor tennis courts, we had a basketball court. I mean, there was just all sorts of stuff. So I don't think they're asking for anything that we wouldn't have asked for if we'd known we could or we wished we had. Um, and I think their questioning is really good. And I, I think when people get upset over their questioning, you know, then they've got a problem. Because if it upsets you to be questioned, then are you upset because you don't have a good answer? Because you can't defend what you believe? And the other thing is, and now I... I mean, I am going to sound a little elitist here, but I find that my students, when they go out in the world, they are amazed at how long it takes the millennials and older people to do something. So they're working at 
some company and they're given an assignment and they like do it and maybe it took half a day and someone will say what do you mean you're done that usually takes us about a week so the speed and quality that they can think and produce is so much more than I see a lot of folks doing and most of the bitching and moaning I see in my clients is from people in their 40s and 50s not younger and it's just like you know you just need a smack on the tush man <laughs> so I think I think there is so much for us to learn from the younger generation and there's a lot they can learn from us too but but I, I think it's very close-minded and um, and stick in the mud status quo kind of thing if you're not willing to learn I mean they're not the young kids aren't right about everything but neither are we Oh, but I thought I was when I was young. <laughs> oh, I did too. I did well, too. I, I, but and I, then I had kids. Yeah. <laughs> but I think your point's well made is that the, 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 the beauty of that is that you've got a group of people, because of their lack of experience, are willing to ask questions. And you've got a group of people, because of their experience, can maybe see some of the value in those questions. I, I have to keep, and I keep saying this in almost every meeting I have at work, is that my problem isn't that I don't know things. My problem is is I have to know what I should unknow because things have changed. I always tell the story right. when I was younger, walking through the office after we had a meeting with CompuServe, if you remember them. Uh, you oh, my gosh, had, yeah. You know, dial-up internet, right? And I had we had yep. a meeting with them, and my company, they were asking us how we could grow their user base. And... I left the meeting and I'm walking across the hallway and I said, who in their right mind is going to go home from work and get on the Internet? That's the dumbest business I've ever heard in my life. And I always remember that moment because, you know, years later, I'm on the Internet and I'm thinking, right. you were the dumbest person in the room that day, Paul. And that's a, a good, you know, it's kind of like the, what is it, the memento mori that you have to ask, or mori momento, whatever the, the, the Roman person would say to the Caesars, you know, to say, hey, remember, you're going to die someday, too. That's always a good mm -hmm. thing to keep in the back of your mind that things change. The assumptions we make in business change. Therefore, the questions these people ask, listen to them, because they may be seeing things that have changed that you didn't see or can't see. Even So I, I'm glad... I, I'm glad you said that, Deb. I, I'm one of the few people that keep believing that this generational stuff is really life stage, and we just don't want to admit it. You know, it's like oh, totally. When I was 25, I wanted to travel too. It's not that I can't; I just couldn't when I was 35 or 45. Anyway, well, and I think one of the things I love that the kids and the younger people bring, and look, I have a meeting with a client tomorrow, and there's somebody that's new in the organization. And um, they don't come from the classic background everybody else does. So I met with him last week no. in preparation for tomorrow's meeting. And I said, you know, you've got to speak up. And if you don't, I'm just, no, I'm going to call on you a lot. And he said, well, but I'm new and I don't know this. I said, and that's why. I said, you're not indoctrinated. You have fresh eyes and a fresh perspective. And we need to hear that. Yeah. So... I told, my, I, I told my kids the same thing. Is I said, the lesson I learned too late in life is that just because I'm young doesn't mean I'm sm not smart. Right. And just because somebody is the vice president doesn't mean they are smart. Definitely. If you, have, 
you know, and I think that's what held me back at first is I kept thinking, well, they're from, they're above me in rank, therefore I have to defer. And they, you know, like you said to your friend there is that, no, your point of view is as valid as anybody else's. And if you're a smart person, you'll figure it out. Right. I think that's great. I mean, how do I mean, from our perspective, Phil, you know, we're, we're out here with beer and napkins. We're constantly trying to drive people to create new ideas, think them through. I mean, this is, we can't allow ourselves to self-censor uh, just because of our backgrounds and where we are. So I think, you know, from a beer and napkin standpoint, I think that's a great lesson that, that we should always assume that we're smart and go from there. <laughs> right. Just because I have a great beard, you, you've got to listen to me. <laughs> Maybe for a little bit, at least. Uh, that only happens to you in December in the mall, right? Everybody. Has <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so, moving on, one last question. I, I would like your perspective since you're connected with the, uh, the students and different things that are merging and the clients and things. So what do you see the future like? We talked about Facebook and how that's shifting and changing and emerging technology. So what, what, what are you seeing on the horizon, Deb? Well, there are a couple things. Um, one is I'll pick on Facebook. So I use Facebook purely for personal, not for work. I tend to have a very nice but diverse network of diverse views, but people don't seem to yell at each other if they disagree. Um, and I also keep it light. I don't do a lot of expressing of, of big opinions on there. What I found is, because I thought of going off of Facebook several times, but the Facebook groups are a great way with the students to organize stuff. So there's a design at Brown group, the blockchain at Brown group and all that. So I find the stu- my students may not use the rest of Facebook, but Facebook Messenger yeah. is the way to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Instagram and stuff are ways to share, but if you're working on a project together, like this class I was leading last fall, all the stuff was going through Facebook Messenger, and we had a Facebook group for the class, and that's pretty common. So I, I do need to use Facebook for that because the kids just use that as their way of sharing information. Um, I do think there's some oversharing. I also, I've always, I've just been surprised when I hear people talk about the politics or whatever, and I don't know, again, I'm just blessed with the type of people that I'm friends with express their opinion but don't damn each other when they disagree. Um, And then also, like on Twitter, Twitter is really, I use that for information, not for expressing views per se. I just don't want to go there. So it's more... You know, have you read this? Did you read this? It's sharing information related to innovation and business more than anything else. I do find on, I think on Facebook, one of the problems with it is, is that people have the ability outside of your main, depending on your share settings. I find that the, the, where the vitriol comes from is people who are maybe one or two degrees separated from your core because there isn't, Mm -hmm. there isn't any social, uh, uh, friction there for them to worry about. You know, I can be as mean as I want because I don't really know you. And I think part of that that Facebook allowing people, you know, friends of friends of friends to comment on your feed gives you, uh, does that. And I think the bigger your network gets, obviously, the more points of entry and therefore you get that problem. And I tried to do Facebook, like you said, as a, as a personal thing, really, and family kind of thing. 
but over time, because I started that when I was a consultant, and again, you know, more is more when you're a consultant. That's your lead generation, right? So I kept, I, I finally caved and basically accepted anybody that wanted to be my friend on Facebook. I accepted it. So I, I, you know, I did the damage to myself. Right. Um, but Twitter's, yeah, I mean, I use Twitter a lot the same way you do. That To me, that's an information uh, access point for me. I mean, sometimes I right. try to be funny on there. You know, nobody else thinks I am, but I'm, I'm brilliant and hilarious. But, um, I found Twitter's just, um, I'm not as active hmm. as I used to be because I just don't have the time. Um, and and on, on Facebook, I'm pretty tight. So I think my settings are really just friends. Yeah. And some things might be friends of friends, but that's it. Yeah. You're smarter than the rest of us, maybe. <laughs> no, it's just, I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. It's just, you know, how, I'm, how I am. So um, the other thing I really see, I have a lot of hope for the future, given our kids. Um, you know, like if, if our world is left in the hands of the kids that I get to mentor, then we're going to be just fine, um, even with the crap that we're leaving them. And so many of them are more politically activated, which which I love. So I may not agree with their opinions, but they're getting out there and doing stuff, which is really important. Um, the other thing, and they're so full of love. I mean, all my kids, like I've been doing some virtual office hours, and the first thing they all say is, so how are you? They don't even want to start with them, and it's their office hour. Um what does worry me, though, is we have put, and again, this is a select group, I know, but we have put these kids on a treadmill since before birth, and they don't know how to get off. They don't know how to have unproductive time. They don't know as easily how to chill. They keep thinking they have to be doing all this stuff because, you know, you're in the right preschool, so you get into the right school. You're in the right school, so you get into the right middle school, then to the right high school, then to the right college, and then to the right job, and then to the right what. And it's like, guys, you're at Brown. You've made it. Chill. And so that's my and, – and I've seen the, the level of anxiety and um, worry in these kids in the last two and a half years has just changed dramatically. So one of the things that I've been asked to do at Brown, um, up by the, the president and those folks, is if I can start making some notes. And granted, it's a very small sample set. But um, what, do, what do I see that's really changed, say, in the last five years? And, you know, what could we do about it? Now, the what can we do about it, I don't know, because these kids have been put on this treadmill they get to Brown, they're 18, you're not going to undo 18 years of running on a treadmill in two or three years too easily. But mm-hmm. but that's just got me really concerned, the pressure we're putting on these kids. And even if you don't try to do that as a parent, their peers and their schools are all doing that. I mean, my daughter had a, had a teacher in high school, and they went to a great private school, so yes, yeah, part of the problem in a way. But she made a comment like, "Oh, well, with answers like that, you'll end up going to community college." You know, now what's wrong with community college? Nothing, but the way you do it like that just sets up this pressure that's cruel. But other than that, other than that, no, um, they're just—I would hand my life over to those kids in a second. I have two that are that age. That's so. encouraging. I'm very happy with. The, I, we didn't pressure him. I'm glad you're here to hear you say that. 
others have told us that we didn't put enough pressure on them, but I have two fairly well-adjusted kids who are happy doing what they're doing, and they are pleasant to be around even when, you don't, when you're not their parents. So I figure I did my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if they're around folks like you, Paul, and Deb, then we should be fine. They'll, they'll, they'll break out of this cognitive box and, and, and be just fine. So I am, I'm encouraged about that. <laughs> so, Deb, I have a question, and this is really kind of open-ended, but you know, you've been in business for a while. You've run your own LLC. You're into innovation. You're into business strategy. What do you think are a couple of the big things most businesses and most people who are in business miss? What is the thing that if you could fix tomorrow would probably cut your business in half, I'm guessing. But what are most people missing in business today? They are missing, so it's kind of my, my philosophical view. Um, there's this philosopher, theologian called Martin Buber who died in the 60s and he had a view, a book, and I'm terribly paraphrasing, of I, thou, I, it. So do you treat someone as a function or as a, as a relationship? And what I see missing all the time is the I, thou. So what I see missing is they do not understand how critical it is to understand their mm -hmm. customers and their customers' customers, the end users, from the end user's perspective, not from how they, my client, want it to be or Kant's divine ought think it mm -hmm. should be, but how it really is. They're so wrapped up in their worldview and, and frankly, a level of egotism and hubris that they don't know what's right for the customer. And they don't get off their tuchuses, to use the Yiddish, and get out there and really watch and listen. They always have to put a spin on it to, to either fit with what they want to do or what their products and services can do. And it's that lack of real ethnographic customer focus, customer discovery mm -hmm. perspective that I think screws it all up to varying levels and some of that does come from a lack of humility in the leadership team which you know is lousy <laughs> I you know I'm, I, I love hearing that point of view and I, I, I it's, but it's I think buried in all of that Deb as I hear you say that it's one of those things that, that when you say it I would imagine most business people leaders would say well of course that that's that is uh, that's axiomatic when it comes to business understanding your customers so i'm going to ask you a little deep, deeper is if that's the case why aren't they doing it but they think i think they think they are doing it okay they buy the right reports they do focus groups which is so antiquated you know all that stuff so i make them um do a couple things i make them get out and meet with customers or watch customers. Now, I have one client in particular I've been working with for for 14 years now, and they know their customers and their customers' customers better than their customers. I mean, now they're in serving the consumer product good companies, and um, you can go out with them, and they can tell you everything. Go grocery shopping with them and everything is just too cool. And, um, and they know that well, but they're very rare. And that's because they're always out and about and looking and listening and hearing. But most customers think they are doing that, and they're not. So, like, I had one client 
who um, I made the C-suite order from themselves, um, call customer service. Oh, you have to wait that long on the line? Oh, you couldn't figure out how to do it via the web? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. And then also have them start looking at places in their lives where they are the consumer and someone else is providing them a product or service. How do they want to be treated? How do they want to be listened to? Um, mm -hmm. And actually going out and watch their customers try to order, receive, unpack, install, repack, or throw out their stuff. <laughs> and they're amazed when they do that. And I'm like, hello? You know, isn't this just... You know, and, and to a degree, they need to do that with employees. I had a client, one of my first clients, so it's before I learned how to be tactful. Um, I was in meeting with, with him. He was a CEO, which is generally where I am. And um, he was complaining about how mm. people weren't living the values. And, oy vey, we'd done our strategic planning, <laughs> and they had placards up and mouse pads with their values on it and the whole thing. And he's talking about he tried to do something and just the people were not living the values what's the matter and so and again I am from New Jersey and New York and I'm in the Midwest now which is amazing um, but I said to him do you have a mirror and he said well yes it's right behind my door so I said well then close the door and look and he looked and he said what and I said look in the mirror and he said yeah I said there's your problem <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, the reason no one lives their values is because fundamentally you don't. So why should they? You know? Um, and it's it's just kind of that thing of, you know, it's like raising kids, right? So I think that's the biggest thing is they don't understand. that, And they don't understand that they don't understand. They think they do. They, they intellectualize it and they think that they feel it. Uh, I remember right. years ago working with uh, one of the big three automotives and the uh, president of the company had never been to a dealership because he'd always had his car delivered to him. He'd never, <laughs> he'd never been in there for service because somebody took care of that for him. He was the president, right? Oh, my gosh. Right. Crazy. But uh, that's very interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, hey, hey, Deb, uh, just, to, just to kind of, uh, I know I really appreciate your time on here kind of coming to a so uh, we want to end the, the session with a little bit of fun. Yeah. So we've got some, some good little rapid fire questions, but my first one yep. as a beer and napkins, yep. member of the beer and napkins network here, I have a napkin and, and I'm going to hand you a napkin. What problem do you want to solve? I want to solve the putting pressure on our kids. Great. Good one. All right, Paul, you got them. What, the other questions? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Want me to tell you? <laughs> uh, there was, like, one is, what, uh, what is your favorite sound? Oh, my favorite sound in the world, which I have recorded and play at night to put myself to sleep, is... The bell buoy at the entrance to Pemaquid Harbor as it's, you know, dinging and donging to the crash of the waves. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yep. And the one I hate the most is a phone ringing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no. I know that one, especially if you have kids in high school and college. Yeah, although these days, you know, it's a text or a FaceTime. <laughs> 
What's your favorite cuss word? Shit. <laughs> I love that word. Yeah, I'd say it quite a bit myself. So here, here's the other. Here's another one. If you could be any other profession other than what you're doing now, what would that be? You know, um, I don't have one. I can. I mean, I can tell you, I can see myself maybe doing a little more teaching. But I just love what I do. And it's been so emergent and evolved. Like, I never, if you had told me when I was 20, graduating from Brown, going to Bell Labs, that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, like, let alone being a mother, I would have thought you were out of your mind. Mm. Um, so I have no idea. We'll just see how things go, because I am so blessed to love what I do. And, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I have a. It keeps me challenged. It keeps me learning. So, hey. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I tell my wife the same thing. I'll never retire. I'm having too much fun doing what I do. Uh, yeah, I don't ever want to retire. But I am curious, you know, on your website, um, I'll give you a chance to do a couple of plugs for your, your stuff here in a second. But you have a great picture <laughs> of you sitting there with an awesome tan because I can see the tan line where your watch is. So I know you. Oh, yeah. Where is that picture taken? That looks like a just is that Maine? Because it looks like you're like at the top of a lighthouse or some. Oh outside. yeah, so I am. I and I'm one of my students took that because I love having them come up to Maine. I am at the top of the Pemaquid Point Lighthouse, which is on. It's the most beautiful lighthouse in Maine. Um, it's on the main quarter, but yeah, I'm up at the top of that, and my I think I'm my elbows down on a map of the harbor on a nautical map of the harbor yeah, and there's a brick yeah i love going up to the top and looking out what? and there's a brick in front of you is that part of the lighthouse or oh i think the brick that's in front of me i have to go look um is oh yeah it's um i think it's just holding down the um yeah that brick just is holding down the nautical map and so i'm looking out toward the ocean and um, what you see behind me, those houses, is um, north. Okay. Oh yeah, look at that tan line. Huh. Yeah, I, I'm looking. I'm like, God, that's a nice, that's a nice summer tan right there. Hey, you know, people think you know, oh Maine, but I'm telling you, it's Maine is you know the way life should be. Yeah. I thought maybe the brick was something for uh, out in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since you're from Cleveland. <laughs> nah, see, because I'm not from Cleveland. Um, see, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really a Nor'easterner, so someday, in the not-too-distant future, we will be living up there in Maine permanently. Oh, good. Hey, Deb, you got any parting words of wisdom for us? <laughs> okay, so one of your questions is, what's my least favorite word? Mm-hmm. So this is my parting comment. Do never say reiterate. Because iterate means to do over and over. So when you're reiterating, what the heck are you doing? You know what I'm saying? Well, when you're reiterating, you're iterating. So just iterate. Um, no, Irregardless, right. My parting words or whatever is just enjoy life and be curious there is so much to learn and so little time and just chill so how, how can Love people it. get a hold of you what, what's the best way you got what uh, you want to hit us with your twitter and the best way to get a hold of me is um 
is probably email and on my site, like I think right on the first page, I should know this, right? Um, right at the bottom, there's a get in touch and just fill that in. But only if you want to like be challenged and, and be forced to get out of the status quo. Otherwise, find somebody else to call. Or you know, I, I do, and I know, Phil, I'm, I'm running us all over here, but I, 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 did, I loved that you put in there that, that, that you require your clients to donate 10% of your fees to a charity. I, I saw that, and yep. I've always felt like that was kind of a very interesting pricing model. I wanted to do that at an old company of mine where we would donate a certain percentage of each, each engagement because that's how the company got started. It got started by borrowing money from friends and family, and we were going to take whatever mm-hmm. that amount was out of every client engagement and donate it back give it back so So i'm curious how that's worked for you because you are very adamant in your description that if you don't do this we're not doing work right um you know it's worked well i don't require seeing a check because if i do i shouldn't be working with you what i have found is with some clients if there's something urgent that comes up and it wasn't planned and my schedule's tight I get the, all right, well, we'll do a 30% match to, you know, like the food pantry if you'll come help us now. Ah, so they're using it as a negotiating They are, and that's just fine yeah, with me. That. Um, but, yeah, it's been neat. I don't, you know, I want to know where they're giving, not to keep track or anything, but to look at the diversity of how people are giving. Um, but, you know, my view is to whom much is given, much is joyfully required. Okay. I read that. Yeah, so that's good. So let's say you are so, at mills-gofield.com. That's M-I-L-L-S-S-C-O-F-I-E-L-D.com. And what's your Twitter handle? Mm-hmm. D. Schofield. Okay. D-S-C-O-F-I-E-L-D. All one, all run together. Perfect. Holding a nice blue lobster there. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I, I mean, Phil, I appreciate everybody's time here tonight. We spent a lot of it, so thanks so much. Yes, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been such a fascinating uh, journey with you and hearing just how you've got to where you are and where you, you are mentoring the students and, and sharing your, your wisdom and, and, and gleaning from them as well. Oh, yeah. it's, just, it's just fascinating story and, and and really your role model for all of us uh, oh my gosh embrace em, embrace your life and it's just wonderful thank you so much well thank you for having me i really really appreciate Great virtually it virtually meeting you deb and thanks again for your time. <laughs> you, you too paul all right well have a good evening everyone you too Thanks so much for your time today. If you'd like to be a part of the podcast, check our website at beardnapkins.com, all one word, for our schedule. We always record live in a pub and love to have you in the audience. Until our next podcast, here's to new ideas, new friends, and the pubs that enable greatness. Thank you so much for listening.